Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you would like to use the Bible on the back of each aisle, it should be on page 933 in that black Bible. Uh, sometimes I like to go home after work and cook, and it's sort of a creative outlet for me. It's, it's a mindless task that I don't have to think too much about. It comes naturally. I'm a foodie. I love food. I like working with different flavors. I have some of my own go-tos, but I like to cook. I like it, It's sort of, in a way, a stress reliever for me. Um, every once in a while, if I forget that I'm supposed to be the one doing the cooking that night, I will text Caitlin, my wife, and I'll say, hey, before I head home, can you turn the oven on to 425? That way it's ready when I get there. Or just the other day, I actually texted her and say, can you put a big pot of boiling water on so it's ready when I get home? In our text this morning, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor, and he's actually going to say, hey, I want to come see you, but before I see you, I felt it necessary to say these things so that you could go ahead and start preparing and getting things in order in the church that you have been called to lead. What we've seen over the past few weeks is that Timothy has been encouraged as a young pastor to sniff out and kick out false teaching. He has been told what the different roles of leadership and ministry are in the church for women, for elders, for deacons. And now we are coming to a passage this morning where we're going to see generally what does it look like to live a faithful life. Our sermon series has been Faithful, looking at all the different things that that term can mean. First of all, how we have a faithful God, who later in the books of Timothy we'll see that even when we are faithless, God is still faithful. But how He is making for Himself a faithful people and a faithful church. And so this morning as we come to this text, what we want to see is what does it mean to live all of life with faith and thankfulness to the glory of God. I'm going to start at verse 14 of chapter 3, and I'll be reading through chapter 4, verse 5, if you would like to follow along. Chapter 3, starting at verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
For everything God created, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Would you pray with me again? Holy Spirit, would you help us to understand these words? If anything in my preparation was false understanding or false teaching, would you keep me from saying it? And Lord, anything that is true and in line with your word, would you help me to proclaim that with courage and boldness? And by your spirit, would you speak to us what you would have us here this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I said, what I want you to see from this text is that what, is, what does it look like to live all of life with faith and thankfulness to the glory of God? If you have a worship guide, we provide an outline on the back, or you can follow along in your scripture journal if you have one of those. Our outline, three points, faithful living in the church, faithful living in our confession, and faithful living with thankfulness. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So first, faithful living in the church. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Paul says to Timothy, as I said at the beginning, that he wrote these things and he is writing these things. He's writing this letter. Remember, this is an experienced apostle of Christ, pastor, who is writing to Timothy, who is a young local church pastor. And he's kind of putting together a blueprint for the church. And he's saying, these are the things that you need to go ahead and start working on before I can even get there. These are so important that you need to put these things in place. And he says, if I delay, in verse 15, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, when I was reading this, it reminded me of often a phrase that I hear people say, especially in a small town in the south. And that is this. That's not how you behave in church, right? This is the Lord's house. You can't say that in the Lord's house. That's not what Paul's talking about in this passage. He's referring back to everything that he's talked about up to this point, about the, the leadership structure in the local church, about proper teaching and doctrine, how that is to be held up in the local church and guarded and protected He's not talking about, and we're actually going to see this in a little bit, hopefully, uh, he's not talking about how your actions or your behavior or your language should be different in the church because it's the household of God. In reality, your life should be the same everywhere, right? shouldn't change just because you step into a brick-and-mortar building. But what is he talking about? He's saying, this is how we organize the church. Why do we do that? Well, look, he says, because it is the household of God. This is how you ought to behave. This is how you ought to organize yourself in leadership and teaching and all these things, because this is the household of God. This is God's family. Now, that term household is the Greek word oikos. Ever had oikos Greek yogurt? House Greek yogurt, that's what it means. Oikos. And this word was actually already used in this chapter three times. It was when it was talking about elders and deacons managing their household well. And so he's carrying the theme 
that elders, just as elders are to manage their household, here's how you should lead your household, deacons as well. Well, in the church, which is the household of God, these are the ways, these are the things you should have in order. These are the ways you should behave, organize the church, lead the church, teach the church, guard the church. Because this is God's family, lead it well. Protect it, teach it, teach them, teach her. And then what does he say about the church? He says it's God's household, and then he also says it's the church, which is the gathering, the assembly of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Some young kids are probably snickering a little bit, right? What is a pillar and a buttress? What does that mean? Well, a pillar, you can imagine these old Greek, Roman type temples, right? And actually, in Ephesus, where this letter was written, where Timothy was a pastor, there was one of the greatest, the Temple of Artemis, or the Temple of Diana. And I forget, I forgot, I forgot to write this down, but I think they said there were like 30-something pillars holding up this thing. Massive. Or maybe it was me, each, me, each one was like 33 meters. Sorry, I should have written that fact down for you. But there was a bunch of pillars on this temple. It was a big temple. And these pillars held up the weight. That, that temple actually is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was massive. And these people would have walked by it almost daily being in this city. So, that, so the church is saying the church is a pillar. It's holding up a massive amount of weight. But also it's, it's a buttress. It's like a beam. So a buttress you could say is like these big arch beams, right? It's holding, it, holding up the weight. It's holding up the roof, and it's holding the whole building together. Now, one thing to recognize is that it's not just that there's one pillar and one buttress, right, in a building. There's a lot of pillars, typically, and there's a lot of buttresses. There's a lot of beams holding up the weight. And just like there are many churches, right? But what, it, what are these churches doing? What is the role of the church well, they are pillars of the truth. Now, what this is not saying is that the church is the one that determines what truth is or writes what truth is and whatever the church says is truth, but the church is responsible for recognizing the Word of God as truth and for holding it up to the world as God's Word. Do you see what I'm saying? So the church is responsible to hold up the truth of God for others and to keep it guarded, protected, so that the truth can always be proclaimed in the world. That's the church's responsibility. That's our responsibility as a church is to make sure we are not only grounded on the truth of Scripture, but that we're actually holding out the truth of Scripture's for others to hear and believe and receive as God's word. So the church is meant to be that. Now, what happens in a house if you've got a bad beam? If you've got a rotten beam or you miscalculated and you didn't put strong enough of a beam up? Well, that it's going to collapse, right? It's going to fall apart. It's going to cave in. And so it is with the church. If you've got a bad church, well... 
the truth is not going to be able to be held up in that place. If you've got toxic leadership, if you've got unbelieving leaders, if you've got a culture that is focused more on tradition or acceptance or politics than the truth of God's word, what's going to happen? The truth is going to be forgotten and no longer be held up as God's word. Structurally, it might still be together physically. You could have great crowds of people, thousands of people in a church that's not a true church because it's not holding out the truth of God's word. So in the church, it's important to preserve and hold up the truth of God's word in a world where that's going to be consistently and constantly challenged. So that's the first thing, is that we are to live faithfully in the church. How do we do that? By holding up the truth of God's word, by staying true to the truth of God's word. The second thing we see is that we are to be faithful in our confession, starting at verse 15, or 16, sorry. He says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Now, before I read this next part, most likely a lot of people, a lot of commentators say this was probably an early church hymn that used to be sung. So you know how sometimes in a sermon I might quote a line from a hymn or from a song or from you know something that we sing or a poem or something like that? Well, Paul seems to at sometimes quote hymns that maybe were sung in the New Testament church. Philippians 2 is another example of that, uh, where people think Philippians 2 is a hymn that was maybe sung, or Colossians 1, or Romans, um, I think, 10 or 11. So there's lots of these places where at least it's poetic. Maybe it wasn't a song, but it's poetic in the sense that it was written in a way to be remembered, that Paul really wants this to stick. And something that's not quite communicated in the English is that in the Greek, each of the verbs used ends with the same ending. So it would actually have a cadence to it, a rhythm and a rhyme to it. And so to try to communicate that, I'm going to read this again. That, that rhythm and that rhyme is the aorist past tense of the verb form. So let me just read this again to try to give you that sense. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. And he was taken up in glory. Paul is emphasizing, what is this? What has he just laid out for us? It's the story of Jesus, isn't it? It's the gospel. What is the mystery of godliness? What is our confession? It's Jesus. He might not say his name here, but we know who he's talking about. Who is he? He is Jesus. And something we talked about this past week in our group study on Wednesday night is that you know, a lot of churches talk about godliness. A lot of churches talk about the good news. A lot of churches talk about the gospel. And we'll throw these words out sometimes without describing what it actually is, right? A lot of churches, a lot of people I know, we're a gospel-centered church. We preach the gospel. We believe the gospel. We live the gospel. We want to have a gospel culture. Gospel, gospel, gospel. But you never actually hear them say what it is. What is the gospel? Well, the answer here that Paul gives us is that Jesus is the gospel. 
And the gospel is Jesus. He is the good news. It was Jesus who was manifested in the flesh. God became man and lived among us. It was Jesus who was vindicated, proven to be who he said he was by the Spirit. How did he do that? Through his signs and wonders while he was here on earth. He lived a life of miraculous perfection. It was Jesus who was seen by angels. What is that talking about? Most people say this is talking about his resurrection, that he came back to life and angels bore witness to that. And 1 Peter actually says the angels were amazed at that. And then he was proclaimed among the nations, and he's still being proclaimed among the nations. That's the Great Commission. Go into the world and make disciples of all nations. He was believed on in the world, and he's still being believed on in the world. And he was taken up in glory where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is our risen king, and he is victorious. Jesus is the gospel. He's the good news. He's the one who brings salvation to sinners, who brings hope to sufferers. He's the risen king who is executing his plan on earth, which is to bring his kingdom and church to all nations. You can either get in on it or get out of the way. Right? In a loving way. Jesus is on mission, and he has invited us to be on mission with him. What is that mission? Why does Paul use the term mystery of godliness? Why didn't he say the mystery of grace or something like that? Well, it's because it's through the gospel that he is making a new people for himself. That as he saves sinners, he's also redeeming them. He's making them more like Christ. He's restoring the image of God that he originally created in them. Created them to be. And so it is through the gospel, through the proclamation of Jesus, through believing in this Jesus, and through the spread of Jesus on earth that he is restoring godliness to a broken and sinful world. Now the Spirit, chapter 4, verse 1, expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. That's actually the the word that we get apostasy from. Some will actually leave the faith. What does that mean? Well, 1 John helps clarify that. It means they were never really a part of us. Those who confessed this confession, but then after a while their life proved that it was just external, kind of external subscription, going along, cultural adaptation, but they were never truly of the faith. They have apostatized. Why? Verse 2 says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared. And what is that saying? This term seared, other translations, King James, I got to give them credit for this one, give a little more explanation to this. It says seared with a hot iron. It's this idea of branding or cauterizing. What happens when you brand or cauterize? Well, let's take both examples for a second. When you brand someone or something, you create a a rough scar tissue that never goes away. It's a rough exterior. 
And what is also said about that is that all the nerves underneath that scar now are permanently damaged, that they can't feel the way they were designed to feel in the first place. And then, so that's one example, is branding. And back then in Roman times when Paul was writing this, that was something that was done on slaves. We know of history in our own world where that was done on slaves. They were marked with a brand. It was done on fugitives or criminals. They were marked with certain letters to say what their crime had been. So they were branded. It was also used with animals, marking ownership. So branding, you know, bringing in this imagery, Paul is using that to communicate something. But then it could also mean to cauterize. And what is it to cauterize something? Well, when you have something that is persistently bleeding, you cauterize it to stop the bleeding, to seal it in, to keep anything from getting in and anything from getting out. So you cauterize it. It's also a way to, uh, in some medical ways, to try to cleanse what's going on there. Well, Paul is using this imagery of searing the conscience. What does he mean to have your conscience seared? Well, through repetitive, willing, unrepentant, persistent sin, your conscience can become hardened and calloused to the point where nothing's going to get in and nothing's going to get out. You're not going to let the Spirit convict in that area because you've gone so far that the Spirit's work of conviction is not doing what the Spirit intends to do. You're calloused. Your conscience is seared. But then also your conscience can be seared in a way that nothing's getting out. That all those sins that you're afraid of, anyone finding out about you, you've got to keep them in. Because you're scared what will happen if somebody were to know about that. And that's how your conscience becomes seared. And what happens when your conscience becomes seared to the point where it's permanent? Where there's no return? Romans 1 actually says that at one point, God will turn you over to your sin. He'll finish his work of conviction, and he'll leave you up to your choices. Let you follow that path of unrepentant sin and let you go your way. And that's what's happened in the lives of these people Paul's talking about. That's scary. That is serious. That is frightening. And it can happen in the church. Consciences have been seared throughout church history. I've heard stories just in the last couple of years. Key leaders in the church pastors, evangelists, apologists who were so persistent in their hidden sins, their consciences were seared, and God gave them over. That's scary. That's serious. And so what do we do with that? Well, we can bring that to the Lord too. We can believe that God really is a gracious Savior for sinners. 
Psalm 32 actually says, and I'm going to read this because it's so good. It's talking, David's talking about his conscience in a way. He doesn't use the term, but he says this in Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What is David talking about there? He's talking about a a free conscience, a good conscience, a conscience that has been set free from guilt and sin. Why do we know that? Because in verse 3, he keeps going, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. What is David saying? He's saying, when I was under the conviction of sin, I felt sick to the bones. My body wasn't right. My mouth was dried up as if the heat of summer was on me. God, your hand was heavy upon me. I was filled with anxiety and fear and trouble. A guilty conscience. But then, verse 5, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sins. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time that you may be found. There will come a time when God will no no longer be found. There will come a time when your prayers will not be heard anymore because Jesus is coming back and when he comes back, he's coming to bring judgment or he's coming to bring salvation. Where are you? Is your conscience clear or is your conscience seared? David confessed his sin and found blessedness, happiness, peace. Why? Because he brought his sins to God and he confessed them. So, if you're here this morning, how's your conscience? Did that last five minutes make you ridiculously uncomfortable? You squirming in your seat? Is the Holy Spirit trying to do a work in you? Is your tummy all over the place? Are your bones wasting away? Is your conscience troubled? Is God reminding you right now of the sins that nobody else knows about? That nobody can ever know about? Or are you resting in the gospel that says this grace is real? God's forgiveness for sinners is real. And any confessed sin any sin of any believer will be forgiven. Do you believe that? Is your conscience clear?
Are you blessed? Are you happy? Are you at peace? Now, let me just ask a few people specifically. Not names, don't worry. <laughs> Somebody just was like, oh no, does he know? <laughs> hey, if that's true, God's grace is for you. Kids, is there something in your life that you know or you think my parents can't know about that? Is there something you've said or done that you hope they never find out about? Does me just saying that make you uncomfortable, kids? Or teens, if you don't put yourself in that situation, teens, do you know you've done something that would just, you feel like, bring you shame amongst your friends, amongst your peers, amongst even your parents? Are you afraid for people to find that out about you? What about spouses? Is there anything in your life that you know my wife or my husband can't know about that? Maybe you've reconnected with an old fling on Facebook. Maybe something else, flirtation at work. They can't know about that. How's your conscience? Maybe there's something else. Parents, employers, employees, all types of categories. There are sins upon sin upon sin that we could keep hidden or we could bring to the light. Because what is the promise of the gospel? What's the promise of, of the grace of God for sinners? That if we live in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We really believe this stuff. We're not just saying it. God really does forgive sins. So bring them to Him and bring them to someone that you can trust. Diedrich Bonhoeffer talked about how it's in the church, it's in those close friendships, those close places of accountability, of trust, where we can genuinely experience the forgiveness of sins and the clearing of our conscience, because it's not really until we have gotten that out verbally that we really feel like we fully confessed. And there needs to be a safe place for that, right? It could be in the church, it could be with a friend in the church. It could be with your spouse. It could be with a counselor. But wherever that needs to happen, it needs to happen. Otherwise, you'll be like David before he confessed. Sick to your stomach, dry-mouthed. You know, there's actually a correlation between high blood pressure and guilty conscience. There's a physical response 
to having a guilty conscience? Is your conscience clear or is your conscience seared? So we live our confession, we believe the gospel, and we confess our sins, believing that God's grace is sufficient. And then the last thing is, we live with thankfulness. I just lost my place. I flipped my Bible over and lost my place. So what does Paul say? He says that we are to live a thankful life. Let me get back to my passage real quick. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy. If you have your Bible, follow along there on 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 3. These people forbid marriage. They require abstinence from certain foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Now, what Paul is giving us is actually a principle. He's not just talking about marriage, and he's not just talking about food. He's giving us a principle for life. What is that principle? To live with gratitude. And to, to explain this a little bit more, to live with gratitude means to live with humility. So if you live in a way that you are not thankful, you're not grateful for what the Lord has given you, your situation, your stuff, the people around you, what are you really saying and believing? I deserve better. Right? I deserve better. God, you're not being fair. Now, he wants you to bring that to him, right, when you're feeling that. But what's going on in your heart is pride and entitlement. God, my life should be better than this. Why are you being so mean to me? Why are you being so unfair? Why are these people treating me unjustly? Now, injustice is real, right? And we live in a broken world. And sin and suffering will happen. And the Lord wants you to bring all of those things. Bring your concerns. Bring your anxieties. Bring all of your feelings to Him. Be honest when you're angry. Be honest when you're upset about your situation. But what is an attitude of unthankfulness? At its root, it's pride. I deserve better than this. And so we live with all things with gratitude. That's why Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So we are to receive all the good things that God has given us with thanksgiving. Now, there have been lots of discussions and applications on these verses that I can't get into all the weeds and all the details and all the practical applications of this, So I'm going to try to give you a principle, kind of what I've just explained, and then a few points of practical application as we wrap up. So what is that principle? Again, the principle is that in all of life, when you're making decisions and when you're deciding whether or not you should have this or do this, that you should be able to do it with a clear conscience. That's where the conscience comes in, right? I can make this this decision and I can do this and my conscience will not be troubled by it. Okay, that's, that's the first kind of step in the process. Then, can I receive this with gratitude? Do I feel like I am owed this, that I deserve this, or do I see this as a gift from God to bring me joy and refreshment? Okay, 
So that's another principle you can have in that process. And then the third is, does this or would this glorify God? So that, you know, when you're trying to decide, should I do this or not? Should I have this or not? Should I partake in this or not? Should I go there or not? Those are three important questions. Kids, teens, I hope you're listening too. What are those questions? If I do this, can I have a clear conscience? Or will my conscience be troubled? If I do this, can I do it with gratitude? Or am I doing this out of a sense of entitlement? And then can I do this to the glory of God? You got those? Right? I'm not seeing anybody writing these things down. This is good stuff. All right? <laughs> Are you with me? So what is the point here? The point is this is a principle for life that Paul's giving us. And then you can go into those situations and discussions with that grid to process things through, right? So you might get the question of, well, all things created by God are good. Should be received with thanksgiving. How about marijuana? Well, can you do that with a clear conscience? Can you receive that with thankfulness? Okay, can you receive it with, or do you feel entitled to that? And can you do that for the glory of God? Right now, in South Carolina, you can't because it's against the law. Okay? When the law passes, then come talk to me. We'll have to figure that out together. All right? I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. But right now, it's against the law. Can't do it. Right? I, I mean, are you with me? Right? Now, hold on. Now, hold on. What about other situations? What about drink? Alcohol? What about rest? St. Augustine, way back in the day, before the invention of lots of stuff, said this, All virtues can become vices through entitlement, pride, selfishness, and overindulgence. What that means is that if God gave alcohol as a good gift, it can quickly become drunkenness and idolatry. If God gave intimacy as a good gift, it can quickly become promiscuity and perversion. If God gave food as a good gift, it can quickly become gluttony. If God gave rest as a good gift, it can quickly become slothfulness. If God gave work as a good gift, it can quickly become busyness. And if God gave stewardship of resources as a good gift, it can quickly become greed. You see how that works? And so, what do we do with that? We say, Lord, I want, I want a clear conscience. I want to receive everything that you've provided with thankfulness. And I, I want to do all things for your glory. And I need help. And I will not always do that. And when I don't always do that, thank God for the gospel of Jesus that can clear my conscience through grace. Amen? But we can receive all things with thanksgiving if we receive those to the glory of God. Okay? Are, are, we, are we kind of tracking? Are we there? Some of you are like, man, I got to talk to that guy now. Um, I don't know about that one, right? But let's talk. I'll, I'll talk. We'll talk. I might be wrong. Right? That's why I prayed at the beginning of the sermon. Lord, if I'm not supposed to say this, so who knows? Maybe I wasn't. Um, so I'm going to pray. I had another really good thing in my notes, but I'm going to leave that one. 
Some of you are like, man, what was it? Let's have lunch. Yeah? Let's have coffee. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your grace for sinners. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the freedom of the gospel. Thank you that we can be forgiven. Thank you that we can find rest. Thank you that our consciences can be set free through the confession of sin and through the faith that we have in Jesus. Thank you that Jesus' righteousness satisfies the wrath of God for sinners and for that those who trust in him will be forgiven and set free forever. That our hope springs eternal. It will never fade and never go away. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.